You're listening to the Staffing and Recruiter Training Podcast, hosted by industry expert, speaker, and sales trainer, Scott Love. Hey everyone, this is Scott Love, and thanks for joining me on another episode of the Staffing and Recruiter Training Podcast. Hey, so get your calendars ready, because I'm coming to a city near you. If I speak near you, area, if you come to the conference, please come up and say hello. I love meeting people where this podcast makes a difference. I had one guy who ended up signing up for my coaching that said he wouldn't have survived except for the knowledge that was given out on my free podcast, and I really appreciate that. If you haven't heard them all, just go to iTunes, go to my link on my website, thegreatrecruitertraining.com website, and you can download those, and they're all absolutely free. So starting on July 14th, on Thursday, I'll be in Cleveland, Ohio, doing a half-day presentation that morning for the Cleveland chapter of the Ohio Recruiters Association. July 19th, I'm doing a webinar, a one-hour webinar, on how to build a referral pipeline. That's on my website under the webinars link. In October, I'll be speaking at Top Echelon's event. That's October 18th and 19th in Chicago, Illinois. I'll be speaking on October 27th for American Staffing Association's amazing extravaganza called Staffing World. That is the largest and the most prominent conference in the industry. If you have to look at your budget and you can only attend one conference within the industry, that's the one you want to go to. Why is that? Because they're so powerful, they create their own weather. They've got a large, highly capable staff And they've got a lot of resources. And it's not the same program that's cannibalized year after year. They've got fresh content every year. November uh, November 10th, I'll be in Brno in the Czech Republic speaking at the Evolve Recruiting Conference. So if you're over in Europe or in Eastern Europe, come on out and say hello. Also, I wanted to give a shout out to a couple of staffing and search firms that uh, that took me up on my offer to do the virtual team training over Skype. This is a new initiative that I offered last week. If you're interested, you can find info on my website. But I want to give a shout-out to Movement in Detroit, to MR Berkeley in Berkeley, California, to the Maxwell Management Group in Canada, to LC Staffing in Montana, to uh, Personnel Concepts in Australia, and to the Newport Group in Newport Beach, California. It's great to see you guys every week over the web. I enjoy that, and thank you so much for the emails. I really appreciate seeing how the short time that we have over Skype makes a huge impact in your billings. Let me talk about some topics today on this podcast. We're going to have a special guest talking about salary negotiation because salary negotiation is a key part of what we do as recruiters. But before we get to our special guest, I wanted to talk about how to hire recruiters. If you're a manager and you're looking to grow your search firm or your staffing agency, what's the template that you should follow to hire people that have a high likelihood of giving you a favorable outcome? Well, I remember consulting to a firm and the owner was frustrated because he said, I've gone through the revolving door and he told me, he said, Scott, I'm so frustrated because I'm hiring people and they're not working out, but I see so much potential in them. And I told him, I said, the fact that you see the potential in them doesn't mean that they see the potential in themselves. And I said, from my perspective, it looks like you're hiring just a bunch of projects. With all due respect to those people, everybody's in a different spot in their lives. And you don't want to hire people that have not yet learned how to be successful. I told him, instead of finding people, and you see, man, I see so much potential in that guy, find people that see the potential in themselves, people that have been successful at something. And I gave him a formula that he could use, which significantly helped him in his ability to hire high-quality, high-producing recruiters that would stay with him for a long time. And I said, go to the foundation of what recruiting is all about. 
and the way I teach the business, instead of, okay, here are the scripts and all that, even though word tracks are important, I talk about the fundamentals. Let's master the fundamentals first. And I said, there's three of those. So if I ever come and I speak to your office or you see me speak at a conference, if I'm spending a significant amount of time talking about the business, I'm going to start with those three core elements because that's what it's all about. And everything else is a detail. And these are the three fundamentals. The first one is influence. The second one is resilience. And the third is achievement. Influence. Meaning, how can I get you to do what I want you to do and have you thank me for talking you into it? Resilience. How do you bounce back from adversity? How strong are your resilience muscles? Well, look at our business. If you have an interview to placement ratio of five to one, that means for every five first face-to-face meetings, only one results in a placement. Well, that means that 80% of what you're working on falls apart. Welcome to recruiting, and that's what the adversity factor is all about. You need to build your resilience muscles. Then the third is achievement. People that come into the office every day that do very well, they're the ones that pick up the phone even when it weighs 40 pounds. You have to work at your peak performance level every hour of every day without letting up even if you don't feel like it. And the way I teach it is you can do it where it's content. It's not necessarily easy, but it's fulfilling. It's steady. And you are in a place of peace and you're balanced. Influence, resilience, achievement. So I told him, I said, when you're interviewing candidates, and I've done this for firms, when they brought me in and I'm interviewing some of the people they're looking at hiring, I'll ask them questions like this. I'll say, tell me a time when you talk someone into something and it was significant, how did you feel? Somebody in sales? Well, that happens every single day. Not everybody that comes into the business has the sales background, although it really helps because it's a business of talking people into things. Tell me a time when you bought a car and you had to tell all your friends and how many friends bought your car. Those are the people that you're looking for, the people that don't have a problem turning a no into a yes because conversions are what the business is all about. The business is all about conversations and conversions, and that's about it. Resilience. I would ask them this. Tell me a time when you had to bounce back from a professional tragedy. How did you use that to move forward? What were the positives that came from that? Boy, if somebody hasn't thought of this before, And they haven't thought, you know, because I got fired from that job, I was able to learn this skill. And that's what helped me become great in sales. I wasn't meant to be an engineer. That's what you're looking for. Somebody that has the natural attitude and disposition, or maybe it's a learned attitude and disposition, of looking at the glass being half full, looking at, okay, I've got lemonade, or I've got lemons, (laughs) I'm going to make some lemonade out of my lemons. That's what you're looking for. Not everybody has that, and you need that. You need that in this business. And then the third, tell me a time when you were number one in the world in something. What do you mean? Number one in school. I'll even take him back to high school. Well, I was first chair in the honors band playing the clarinet. That's pretty impressive. Why do you think that's impressive? Well, how many hours a day did you have to study? And did you have to practice music every day? Well, I would study music theory for about 45 minutes, and I would practice for two hours every afternoon. And then I'd only practice about three hours just on Saturday mornings. Well, did your mom ever have to tell you to do that? No. You're looking for people that are self-motivated. People that have set a goal and they're willing to do the work and they're willing to be disciplined without somebody telling them to do it. That's what you're looking for. What might seem insignificant. Well, that was was banned. That was in high school. Come on. Do you know how much time those people practice? I sat next to a young woman who was on the flight once and her father was, uh, he plays the bassoon in the Marine Band, in the President's own Marine Band in D.C., 
And she's a professional musician. I said, how many hours a day do you work on, me, on your music? Well, it's about four hours in music classes, about another two hours doing music theory, about another hour practicing, and then another hour and a half doing more practicing every single day. People that are fanatical and passionate about something, that's what you're looking for. That's what it really takes to be successful at something. And I recommend going back to high school. When their mom was right there and didn't have to tell them to do it, did they have the moxie? to pick up that instrument or to pick up the books or pick up the football and stay at it. That's what you're looking for, my friend. You don't make people that way. You find people that are already that way. And I would be willing to bet if you use that model, influence, resilience, and achievement, and you were able to vet candidates out in your process, and you're not looking to rule them in, you're looking to rule them out. You're looking to disqualify people that you're thinking of hiring. If they don't have any one of those three things, I wouldn't hire them. This business is a tough business, and that's why we've got to have a foundation of character, a foundation of what it really takes to be successful. And with that, let's take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll hear our special guest talking about salary negotiation. If you own or manage a recruiting firm, do you ever get tired of training the revolving door of recruiters? Are you disappointed with the performance results of your team? Do you wish your recruiters could finally develop consistent and higher levels of production? Then delegate your training to Scott Love. Through his multi-million dollar interactive online training platform, he can show your recruiters how to close more deals in less time with higher fees. Visit RecruiterVT.com for a free demo today. So I'm excited to have Josh Doty as our special guest. He's the author of a book called Fearless Sour Negotiations. It's something I think every recruiter needs to read because it's such a big part of what we do. One thing I wanted to tell you before we got to the interview was there's a little bit of a technical glitch. You can hear just some minor feedback in the recording. So I wanted to let you know that before you heard this so that way you're not thinking about it the whole time. And I'm going to try to find ways to keep that from happening in future recordings. It didn't happen before. I have no idea, but I apologize for that. Anyways, here is our excellent content-filled interview with Josh Doty. I've got with me on the line Josh Doty, who's a consultant in the area of salary negotiation. I came across Josh on the web, and he and I connected. I read his book. He's the author of a book called Fearless Salary Negotiation that he wrote in 2015. It's the number one book in one of the categories for a career on Amazon.com. So this is somebody that has published his thoughts about what he went through in his personal transition. He's got several engineering degrees, an MBA. He's a true professional. And now what he does, he works with people that are in transition, people that want to get raises or people when they make a move, they want to negotiate a good comp. So I figured his expertise by teaching people this, by studying it, it's certainly something that's within our sweet spot of recruiting and staffing. So we can certainly learn from Josh. So Josh, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Absolutely. So now give me some background. You've never done recruiting, staffing, or anything like that. You went through a transition. What was it that sparked you to want to write your book, the Fearless Salary Negotiation book? Yeah, um, so I, I really, um, a couple of things. One is just sort of general experience, um, you know, from an engineering background, I'm always kind of looking for patterns and um, ways to make things better. 
Um, and I think I've done that, you know, with my career at a high level, but also with, you know, negotiating my salary. Eventually, I realized, wait a minute, I can do better um, than I've been doing when I changed jobs. And so I started negotiating. Um, and I think uh, people that I knew kind of noticed that I was doing different things, and they started asking me about negotiating. Um, and meanwhile, I was working in an industry called a talent management or talent development industry where. I would consult with companies on the other side on, you know, how do we manage our compensation structures? How do we pay people? Um, you know, what are our pay grades look like? So I kind of suddenly found myself after a number of years having this sort of well-rounded picture of how to negotiate salaries in a way that makes sense for people that are seeking jobs, but also for the employers who are trying to, to place people. Um, and so that eventually became fearless salary negotiation as I worked with more people and kind of narrowed the focus to negotiating starting salary, interviewing, and then also negotiating promotions and raises. That's great. And I like your book a lot. It was it was well thought out. I think the structure of that, the logical sequence of chapters, and then even it's more than salary, it's, it's performance, it's setting goals, even giving people some good, solid career advice. Uh, you know, let, let me ask you this. If you were to talk to a candidate that's about ready to go in for a, a salary negotiation with a prospective employer, what's the first thing you would want them to know that would help them to maximize the outcome of that meeting? The first thing I would want them to know is, at the, at the, usually in the interview process, actually, there's a question that I call the dreaded salary question in my book, um, mm -hmm. which is, you know, what is, what is your current salary and what salary would you like to make if you come on board with us? Um, so the first thing I would tell them is don't give an answer to, those, to that question. Um, and, and the reason is that you want to postpone the salary conversation until the company is actually ready to make an offer so that you can hear their offer, which will tell you about how they're valuing what you bring to the table and, and what, what they have in mind for you. Right, I think right. that's the biggest thing, and it, it can be sneaky because it happens so early. So that's something I tell people all, all, I mean, all the time. <laughs> Keep that's that in funny. mind. That's interesting. So this book, your, your, your content could be a real asset to people in the recruiting business because they want that candidate to shine during that interview. What, what are some other, some other pieces of advice that you would give to a candidate that's going in for a meeting? Something else that, that someone that's looking to play someone should tell a candidate to help them shine during those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the biggest thing that I've, that I've been thinking a lot about lately and talking about lately um, is how to answer questions in an interview so that you stand out as a candidate that they want to be part of their team. And so you know, for the candidate before the salary negotiation, there's this whole process where you're sort of courting each other, the business and the, and the person. And so the, the candidate really needs to be focused on, you know, how do I tell a story about how this company will be better if I'm a part of their company? Um, right. And so the way that I help people do that is to think about answering the questions that they're asked in an empathic way, thinking about the business's needs in terms of goals and pain points that they have, and then identifying their own personal skill set and experience that they can bring to the table to help the company address those specific goals or pain points. Um, so that's something that I talk a lot about when I'm, when I'm coaching people and, and in my book and courses is, you know, answering those questions in a way that you're specifically trying to appeal to the specific business you're talking to and their goals and their points and how you as a candidate are positioned to help them address those goals and pain points. You know, that's, that's a simple answer, but I found that sometimes simple answers, there's a lot of truth in them. And I, I think I would agree with you. And I think for many people, that's counterintuitive because they might think, well, let me tell them about my degrees, about my past successes. But I think what you're describing is classical salesmanship. Let me look at what the, what, what's the benefit of the benefit and how that relates with my prospect. Let's talk to that. 
when I talk about the features and benefits, let me customize it towards my prospects solutions that we're looking to get. So that's great. So what I'm curious, what are some examples that you've seen when two people are talking about compensation and it comes to an impasse? It's just too far apart. How do you resolve or how do you recommend that people resolve an impasse? What are some things that you've seen in your past consulting experience? Sure. So, so I can tell you, you know, sometimes there is an impasse. Um, and I think the first thing that I tell people about when that happens, when you're just too far apart to make it work, um, is that that's okay. Because if you arrive at that impasse, that means you've spent time thinking about what's best for you, what's a win-win for you, and what's best for the company. And they've thought about what's a win-win for them. And you're not on the same page. And so there's not a win-win there. And that's okay. Um, I think that for the candidate, the way that you sort of decide if you're at an impasse or not is what I call minimum acceptable salary, which is mm -hmm. a number that you set before you get an offer, before you start negotiating. You think about, you know, what's the minimum base salary number that I require to do the job that I'm interviewing for? Okay, okay. And, and that can be, you know, you want to base that on, you know, estimate your market value so you can go to websites like Glassdoor or PayScale. Try and figure out, you know, what's the median pay for my skill set and experience, um, and then adjust it based on the actual opportunity, up or down, based on you know how badly they need you to do the job and that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And then you set that minimum acceptable salary, and I recommend people literally write it down on like a note card and put it in their pocket or something. Not because they're going to show it to anybody, but because it's a you know commitment device, right? Like I wrote this number down, and I'm not going to take this job for less than this number. Um, and so, so now if you fast forward back to the impasse question. If you're in an impasse, what it means is the company is not offering you, there's no path to you getting that minimum acceptable salary. And so that's why that can still be a positive outcome for the candidate because they have said to themselves, I don't want to do that job for anything less than this salary that I wrote in my pocket. And so if I don't get an offer that aligns with that number that I wrote down, that's okay. And it just means that's not the right opportunity for me. Um, right, right. So that's the, the best way, I think, to move through that impasse and feel very confident that your outcome is still a, a positive outcome, uh, is that you have that minimum acceptable salary and you know that if you get it, that's great, minimum or maybe hopefully more, and you have a great opportunity, or you didn't meet your minimum and you're able to avoid working in a situation where you would have been paid less than you would have been comfortable making to do that job. Right. That's, that's great advice. So let's, so let's just say the candidate has unrealistic expectations. Let's say a recruiter out there has a candidate and the candidate's making, let's say, 85. And what's your minimum acceptable salary that you would require to make a move? Oh, it's probably about 150. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and, and, and assuming the recruiter doesn't laugh like that, right. what can a recruiter tell them in terms of doing your research? I know in your book you talk about doing your homework, doing your research. What are some recommendations a recruiter can tell that candidate? Because if I tell the candidate one thing, well, of course, Scott, you want me to make a placement. And so, of course, you're going to tell me anything that's going to get the placement so you get the fee. I mean, that's what candidates think a lot of times. You know, what would be some other things that a recruiter can tell a candidate, do your own research, you know, and, and find out what is realistic in your niche or in your industry? What, what would be a, a recruiter's good advice to a candidate to talk about those things? Yeah, so that's going deeper on the sort of what I call your market value estimate. 
Um, and, and, and the first place that I mentioned earlier, sort of that really high level, the, the industry wide, you know, what's the, what's the typical pay for somebody with my skill set and experience in my industry and getting that number. If they're that far apart from where they are now and what they want to make, chances are that they're off on that research. And I think that's a place where um, the recruiter can actually help them and say, well, I think the reason you're at 150 is that you are you know, you're looking at roles in the wrong industry, right? And we can talk about that industry, but in the industry that your expertise is in, they're making 85 to 95, right? Um, and kind of help steer them to make sure their they're baselining on the right data is important. Uh -huh. And then there are two other kind of layers of data that I recommend people to get. One of them is sort of like um, local geographic companies in that area in the industry. See if you can determine what they're making. And this is usually easier than it sounds because you will have often met these people at conferences or trade shows or meetups and that sort of thing. Um, so you can just kind of get, you know, put feelers out and say, well, I, I do the same, a similar job to you. Um, you know, and you can ask someone. So, so if I came to work in a company right now, somebody with my skill set and experience, what do you think that they would make? And you'll get some data. You know, you'll get. You only need one or two data points, right? If they're telling you 150, then that's great. If they're telling you 85, then the 150 is just too high. Um, yeah. So, you, so right. you're taking your kind of global and in, industry-wide number, and now you're refining it based on local companies that you interact with at conferences and trade shows and people that you know online and and maybe are networked with on LinkedIn. And then if you can, you want to actually see if you can get similar data for the company that you are specifically targeting. Um, and so sometimes you can do this if you know someone who works at the company, if you know a hiring manager there or something like that, um, and try and refine that number even more. So I think if you do that work, honestly, the number that you come up with should be a very good reflection of about what you can sort of reasonably expect at the company that you're interviewing with. And so you've, you've used data to inform the minimum acceptable salary as opposed to just pulling out of the air as a you know a wishful unicorn number that you hope to make one day yeah that's great well what i what i really wanted to find out though josh was that you're the author of heads up tournament poker hand by hand <laughs> yes that's, that's true. why i wanted to get you on this podcast in <laughs> And, and it's interesting because there is a distinct similarity between playing poker and negotiation. Uh, there, but the thing with poker is that it is a predatory game and there's only one winner. When you negotiate, there should be a mutual satisfaction of needs. Everybody gets to that, that conclusion where they both feel good about that. I'm kind of curious, have you seen an element of game theory associated with salary negotiations? Have you ever seen anything, any parallels between game and gaming along with uh, negotiations? Uh, actually, yes. Um, so I think it's really interesting that you drew that line there. Um, I think you're right. You know, poker is in general sort of a winner-take-all or a zero-sum game. And right. so one person, you know, in a tournament, you're trying to get, literally trying to get all the chips as you're going. You, when you play a tournament, and if you're playing cash games, you're just trying to get, you know, more chips than other people. Um, it's like, like when my wife asked me the difference but with tournament poker, I said, you remember that movie Highlander? She said, yes. I said, that's tournament poker. <laughs> there, can, there can be only one. That's right. Um, and so, it's, so it's, at some level, it's zero sum or winner take all. Whereas, uh, like you said, a, a negotiation is more of, you know, how do we find a, a mutual agreement that works for everyone? That's a win-win where we, where we both win, both parties. Um, the similarity, though, that I found is in... Uh, the commonalities between you know uh, available information and how you gather that information. So um, when I write about poker, when I play poker, one of your primary goals as a poker player is to accumulate as much information as possible about 
your opponents in general, sort of, again, like that industry wide level, your opponents as a whole, and then specifically in a hand, you know, what are their actions and behaviors telling me about the cards they have, about how um, likely they are to be bluffing and, and all that good stuff. So you're, you're constantly trying to accumulate information that you can then incorporate into your strategy and use to hopefully, you know, achieve your winner take all goal. Um, for uh, salary negotiations and, and interviewing and everything else, it's very similar in that you want to accumulate information, but for a different reason. And that's because you want to have the more information you have, the, the more tightly you can couple your expectations with the company's expectations if I'm, if I'm speaking to a candidate. Right, right. And so that's, you know, going back to the dreaded salary question, the reason I do not advocate sharing that information is um, twofold. One is um, the company already has, you know, let's say they have, you know, 50 data points they can pull from when they're trying to figure out what they should offer you for a salary. Um, you have essentially two or three data points available to you, your current salary, your desired salary, um, and, and maybe you know a little about you know, how badly they need you to do the job, or you might know somebody who works there and you, you know their salary or something. Um, and so by giving them that information at the dreaded salary question, they're now up to 52 data points and you're at zero. <laughs> and so you're just you know, kind of sitting back and hoping that they're generous and they give you the best offer that, that they'll give you, but they don't have much incentive to do that. So you're trying to shift that information uh, to you so that you have more information and you can negotiate more and get closer to that, you know, that mutually agreeable number that works for both of you and benefits both of you. Um, and I think that you know, throughout the course of the, inter the, the negotiation and the interview process, you're constantly gaining new information that will help you as a candidate to understand better what it is that your expectations should be. And so, you know, for example, maybe you're talking and you start learning more about, you know, how key the role is that you're interviewing for, but you don't figure that out until you talk to the hiring manager in the third interview, right? Um, right. And the issue is that if you've disclosed, say, your desired salary, you would have been guessing, you didn't have much information, and you may have misunderstood or, or underestimated how important this role is and how crucial it is and what the responsibilities will be. But you've already sort of named your desired salary number by disclosing that information. It's really hard to kind of walk that back once you've done it. You can do it, and I help people do it all the time, but it's harder than if you just didn't say a number because you didn't have enough information to say a number. Um, so, so to answer your question at the high level, the similarity is you're constantly trying to gather information so that you can make better decisions, both in poker and in uh, salary negotiations. And so Absolutely. the longer you can defer certain conversations, the more information you can gather and the better you can do in that conversation to get a mutually agreeable benefit, a beneficial result. Well, this, well, this is interesting because when I read through your book, I, I saw instantly that this is going to help a recruiter to understand and, and really think through comp negotiation. If you look at from a third party recruiter or staffing person's process, there's probably about 30 different things that they do from the beginning to the end. Yet this part is like putting. Those uh, those three foot putts, that one foot, that six inch putt has the same value as a 230 yard drive. Yet it can be easily missed because most people focus on the input side, getting candidates, getting clients, rather than the output side, which is negotiating the finer points of the offer. So if somebody spends time thinking through this and studying it and taking the time to read a book on salary negotiation, they're going to become more adept at that skill. I also see another benefit for people that do third-party recruiting and staffing. Here's a resource they can refer to candidates that they can't place. If I'm talking to someone that I know they move every year, my client doesn't want to pay for fee for that person. 
sorry, Jerry, I can't place you, but let me do this. I'm going to email you a site that has some resources. In fact, you know, let me email it to you. Wow, thank you. My pleasure. Say, who do you know that I can talk to that might have a little bit more experience in a certain area? Uh, it's one of the keys to getting referrals, deposits and withdrawals. I'm going to do a favor for someone, even if it's a favor in the future. I can still make a withdrawal. Who are some people that you know? Now I have earned the right to ask for information if I give them something. So I can see, number one, a recruiter can just give them your website. Here's a site that has some resources that will help you. Even if I can't help you read this, there's some good info. Wow, thanks. Say, who do you know that I should talk to that fits this profile? I think the other resource that they can do is just purchasing a bunch of your books and sending them to their high-profile candidates. If I have a candidate that I want to present to several companies, I want them to work with me and only me, and I'd recommend recruiters, they have that candidate they want to market, they get that candidate in their back pocket, theirs and theirs alone. How do you do that? Let the candidate know I'm on your side. In fact, let me send you a copy. I'll pay for it. It's on me. I'm going to send you a copy of this book. I want you to read that. Wow, thanks. They're obligated. It's kind of like when you go buy a car. Nobody ever goes to buy a car. You go to look at cars and you usually end up buying a car. And while you're there, the, the sales rep says, let me buy you a Coke. Oh, I'll get it. No, I'll pay for it. And you see him pull the money out of his pocket. And then he brings you a Coke. And then when you drive the car home, your spouse says, you did what? Well, I had to buy something. He bought <laughs> And this is all they had, you know, and so it's, uh, you know, the principle of reciprocity. It's how you get people on your side. I can see your book being a tool for recruiters to give to them. Here's a resource that's going to help someone, even if I can't work with them. And then secondly, here's a tool that's going to help this candidate that I'm marketing. And it's also going to endear them to me. It's going to bond them to me. So, I, so those are just some other things I thought of on how you can be a valuable resource to people in the recruiting and staffing industry. Josh. So, uh, so I know that let's just say we talk to someone that we can't help or someone we want to really get some one-on-one -on -one advice about the intricacies of comp negotiation. Tell me about some of the other services that you offer and how people can find you on the web. Sure. Yeah. First, let me just say I'm, I'm definitely stealing your golf analogy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really a perfect analogy for salary negotiation itself, even not even at the higher level. Uh, but there are places where you know, hitting the drive, I think, is not answering the dreaded salary question, for example. Um, and then, you know, on the putting end, there's the final discussion where you've already pretty much locked up a decent salary, but you could do a little bit better if you plan ahead and you have certain ideas in mind. Um, and that's where the putting comes in. You can still you can still do, you know, better even up till the end. So that's a, a just a perfect analogy. I love it. Um, that's great. So other resources. Um, you mentioned my book. Um, and I love the way that you described that it could help recruiters. I think investing in people is a really great way to build relationships over time. Um, it's it's you know it's just good business. Um, and and like you said, reciprocity, long term, uh, even a little bit of game theory, a repeated game, right? Like I want to talk to you again. If I place you once, I want to place you again. I want you to call me next time you you're looking for an opportunity, or if you're a business, I want you to call me next time you need to fill a role. Um, and so giving them the best candidates and, and educating candidates can only help there. Um, I also offer courses um, which are a, a little bit more in-depth um, and uh, they, they walk people through with lessons and there are worksheets um, to, to become you know, adept at interviewing for jobs or negotiating your starting salary or asking for raises or promotions. Um, the idea being that if you take the time to learn these skills one time, 
and you master them, they continue just to pay off repeatedly throughout your career. Um, and so I want to give people the best tools possible to make them, you know, literally master the interview and negotiation processes for their careers. Um, and then, and then I also offer one-on-one -on -one coaching, which I think you alluded to, um, for people who are changing jobs and pursuing a higher salary and also for people who are at their current job and are a little bit lost in terms of, you know, what's, what, how do I ask for a raise? And I can kind of walk you through that one-on-one, -on -one, um, to, uh, you know, to, to put a plan together so that you're asking for a raise in a way that makes a sense for your manager or asking for promotion in that way. Um, so, so those are my three kind of main offerings is my book, which I, I offer at a, at a low price point so that it's accessible to everyone. The courses for people who are you know, serious about investing um, and becoming good at interviewing and negotiating for their careers. And then one-on-one -on -one coaching for people who would prefer just to work with somebody and have a plan that they can execute. That's great, Josh. And what's the title of your book again? And what's your website address? Uh, they're the same, Fearless Salary Negotiation. And it's at fearlesssalarynegotiation.com is where you can find more information on everything that I just described. That's great, Josh. Josh Duty, thanks for joining us today. Good luck to you, and I'm sure we'll be talking again real soon. Thanks a lot, Scott. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll catch you next time. Make sure you check out all the free tools and free downloads on my website, greatrecruitertraining.com. Go to the freebies page where there's 10 free tools that can help you build more. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.